0: Are you looking for a new job? Are you hiring but struggling to find diverse, talented candidates? Then we have something that can help, our job board. Head on over to revisionpath.com forward slash jobs to browse listings or to place your own. This week on the job board, more advertising is looking for a senior graphic designer. It's a remote position, but it is based in Waterton, Massachusetts. Design B&B is seeking a program manager strategist in Chicago, Illinois. 1323 is seeking a designer for their Austin, Texas office. Remote applicants are welcome to apply. Front is looking for a lead product designer in San Francisco, California. Frog Design is looking for a senior interaction designer for their New York, Austin, or San Francisco offices. Matchstick is looking for a messaging director in Atlanta, Georgia. NWEA is looking for an experienced design lead in the Portland, Oregon area. And lastly, one design company is looking for a creative director. Remote applicants are welcome to apply, but Chicago-based applicants are preferred. For just $99, you can post your job listing with us, where it will be on our job board for 30 days, And we'll spread the word for you about your job to our diverse audience of listeners. We also offer annual job board subscriptions. Make sure to head over to revisionpath.com forward slash jobs for more info on these listings. Apply today and tell them you heard about the job through Revision Path. Get started with us and expand your job search today. Revisionpath.com forward slash jobs. You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast. A weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Revision Path. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm your host, Maurice Cherry. And before we get into this week's interview, I want to remind you that submissions are still open for Recognize, our design anthology featuring voices from designers of color and indigenous designers. This year's theme is Reboot, and we're accepting essays of 3,000 words or less that fit this theme. Submissions will end on May 2nd at 5 o'clock p.m. Eastern. Visit Recognize.Design for more information and to submit your essay today. Now let's take some time out and thank our accessibility sponsor for this episode, Brevity & Wit. Brevity & Wit is a strategy and design firm committed to designing a more inclusive and equitable world. They accomplish this through graphic design, presentations, and workshops around IDEA, Inclusion, Diversity, Equity, and Accessibility. If you're curious to learn how to combine a passion for IDEA with design, Check them out at brevityandwit.com. Brevity and Wit, creative excellence without the grind. All right, let's get to this week's interview. This week, I'm talking with community designer Sloan Leo. Let's start the show. All right, so tell us who you are and what you do.
1: My name is Sloan Leo, and I'm the CEO and founder of Flock Studio and also a multidisciplinary installation artist.
0: How is 2021 going for you so far?
1: Oh, Maurice, you really start off with the hard question. (laughs) It's funny you ask that. So I'll tell you, I'll tell you though. Okay. So like 20 minutes ago, I decided to take a little walk on the rooftop of my apartment building because I just was like, I got to get out of these eight walls or four walls. And I was thinking about how different this, this January is from last year. Because last year I like just lost my job, I left a big relationship, I was feeling really like, and then there was a you know about to be a pandemic, but I didn't know that yet. Mm-hmm. So I was really adrift last year, and this year it's like full steam ahead, so much clarity, and I feel like this year, like last year was about building up, and this year is about like letting go a bit in terms of, Fox has enough like stickiness, and we've got a great people around and I have great art you know that I want to be making so I feel it's about like unclutching and releasing Mm -hmm. um, and like allowing things to be in their flow state so I feel more optimistic than I did last year and that's not even related to the pandemic
0: nice I think a lot of people right now in the states are feeling more optimistic for a lot of reasons one just the change in leadership but also The fact that with the vaccines coming out, it seems like we might start to get a handle on -hmm. this pandemic, on this disease that has kind of stopped the world over the past year. So I think there's a lot of that going around. That's good.
1: Yeah. And it was interesting because when I was sitting outside, I was just thinking to myself, I was like, I guess it's time to like let go a little bit more and like let more people like be a part of the work that I'm doing in a different way. Mm -hmm. And just as I was thinking it, Maurice, I swear to you, a hawk. I of not know where, just like flew up in the air, did all these circles, and like laughed, and I just started like laughing hysterically. It's like I'm not one for too much woo woo, but it felt like it's some sort of sign
0: I mean, that's a pretty powerful kind of omen.
1: <laughs> I, know, I was like really random. I was like, well, I'll listen to that, sure,
0: sure thing. I mean, not to get too churchy or anything, I mean, but like usually like in the Bible when there's a hawk sighting, that's like. That's a message from God. So that's, that's yeah. a great thing that you saw, saw that at that time. I got time. Like,
1: real chills. Like I was like, this is cool. i okay. I guess I'm, I guess the answer <laughs> is let go. Like,
0: nice.
1: Couldn't ask for much clearer of a sign, I guess.
0: I saw at the, um, at the beginning of the pandemic last year that you bought a VR headset.
1: <laughs> I did. I was thinking about as I was making my pandemic purchases, you know, I was in a fortunate enough position to be able to get, you know, groceries and all the things. And I also was like, if I'm going to be trapped inside, I got to find a way to get outside from inside. Mm -hmm. And I experienced VR at Sundance and thought it was amazing and figured maybe it'd be a way to, I don't know, like be more active, but also like connect with people. And it's become a big part of my relationship with my parents, some friends, really unexpectedly.
0: Which one did you get?
1: I got the Oculus VR. Nice. Um, and I think I have the Quest. And it's interesting because I feel like I grew up playing like Snood and all these like <laughs> MS DOS games. And so it makes me feel a little dated to think about like all the video games I played on five inch floppy disk. Mm-hmm. And now I'm like inside a portal. And there was this time where I was sitting on my couch watching the Netflix in the VR on a couch in VR in front of my television. And I was like, this is actually too meta for me. Oh, so wow. do no, don't, they, they don't
0: have a Netflix VR.
1: Yeah. It's like a living room. <laughs> to huh. go I guess if you lived, like if you were like a person who just had a room and you didn't have a couch, it'd be cool. But like yeah. on your couch, it's, it's, it's too strange.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking about getting one. Uh, one of the the other guests that we had on the show Regine Gilbert, who's a friend of mine, and she also kind of does some work with, with Revision Path here and there too. She also bought a VR headset and has talked about how just wonderful it is. One, I think just because it allows you to kind of get up and just have a little motion, but it yeah. does sort of, like you said, take you from the like inside outside in a way.
1: Yeah. And like my parents, I haven't seen my parents in two years. Mm. We've gotten really close in the pandemic And part of that is because we started doing like family bowling night or this game called sports scramble. Mm -hmm. So you're like, I'm in my apartment, my mom's in her house and we're, you can hear each other. You can't see each other, but you're in the same like VR game. And so there's one game where you're like playing baseball, but you have like a hockey stick. And instead of a baseball, it's like a pineapple. And my mom is like 68 and considers herself very tech forward. And she just, Laughs and laughs, and it feels like that kind of just hanging time yeah. that you have with your family when you're a kid, where it's not really about anything, but you're just kind of around each other, and that's been really comforting.
0: Nice, that's nice. What are your days kind of looking like now? Like, what does a Sloan Leo day <laughs> look like?
1: Well, it starts the night before by trying to go to bed on time, like real hard. Mm-hmm. And for me, that's like 10 o'clock. I usually play video games at night and talk on. I talk on the phone. I don't know, 80% of the day, probably. Mm-hmm. Friends and stuff like that. So I go to bed early so I can get up early. My day starts usually around 5.30. 5.30 to 6 is kind of like fake meditation time where I <laughs> putter around the house thinking eventually I'm going to sit down. And then from 5.30 to 8, I work. I do like videos, but like, you know, I I do recordings of video-based internal communications mm-hmm. so that our team can just like watch and get updated on things. And then we can have cool meetings. I'll work on client stuff. I'll draw. I sketch a lot in the mornings, and then it's pretty regimented from like five thirty to noon. I have a best friend call every day at eight o'clock for the last year. So every single workday all year, my best friend and I talk at eight a.m. on Facetime. We make coffee together. We have breakfast together. He's kind of like my morning husband, <laughs> uh, but platonic and it's been great. And then the afternoon is usually like mid morning, afternoon, a couple of facilitations time thinking about, I don't know, like what would be really cool to make, like in terms of a big concept piece. And then evening times are things like this, like podcast panels, community jams, which is like our flocks version of just hanging out and talking about fun. I like you know, ideas and design. I make a lot of playlists during the day, (laughs) listen to those. And I do my best to not order more takeout. So that's kind of the rhythm is like super structured 530 to noon, a little chiller between 12 and four. And after four, I'm just not I'm not like, I'm not productive unless I'm just chatting like this.
0: Mm -hmm. But it's good that you sort of found a way to kind of introduce some structure into the day and sort of have these blocks where you can move from one mode to another.
1: Yeah, I grew up, I'm neurotypical. So I grew up needing a lot of self-induced structure, kind of like swaddling. So my mom was really big on like, just chunk it out and like, you know, do what you can, when you can, how you can. So I feel like between that and learning this framework, dialectical behavior therapy, Mm -hmm. just like a way of thinking about your own personal capacities. And all of that has led to me being a person who has a pretty, I have a fair amount of discipline, I would say, not as much as I would want sometimes, but for structuring the day, it's just, it's gentler for me. It's yeah. just kind of like letting it all randomly unfold.
0: Well, that makes sense. One thing that I, I sort of adopted a bit during the the pandemic is, um, I mean, I'm saying that we're still in it, but like I kind of talk to myself in these different states like there's hmm. there's present maurice and then there's future maurice and yeah. so present maurice may be thinking about well what do i need to do for future maurice on friday night because it's going to be the that. end of it's going to be the end of the work week what do you want to do or you know so i'll i i sort of think of by of my days in that way. Or like if I get to the end of the day and I'm like, Oh, I really need to finish this, but eh, future Maurice will handle that. <laughs> like, <Yeah>. like, like like <laughs> present Maurice will go to bed and then future <laughs> Maurice will wake up and handle it later. Yeah. And and that's allowed me to kind of <laughs> let things go and just let things happen as they happen without trying to sort of hold myself to too rigid of a schedule. I also time shift a lot of communication. Like I time shift, probably 90% of my emails. So they go out when I'm sleeping or when I'm working or something like that. So then when I come back to them, I've got like an actionable list of things to do all at once, as opposed to it sort of pinging me throughout the day with like, Oh, you got to do this. Oh, you have to do this. Oh, you have to work on this. I can sort of chunk it in a way and get to it later.
1: Yeah. I think I like that. I get that. When the pandemic first started, I wasn't working. So I had like three months of what I would actually describe as some of the most precious time in my entire life, Mm -hmm. because I didn't have a schedule and I got a chance to see what my natural rhythms are, which it was nice to have that space to listen, despite how like difficult it was to be in New York. I mean, I guess anywhere, but I feel like the shutdown of New York in March was just like one of the most scary things I've ever experienced (laughs) as a human. And so I let myself just be like a bit shook, you know, without feeling like the, figure it out or be productive. And now that the pandemic has been, you know, a year this month in terms of shutdowns in New York, I'm like pretty committed to reassessing things. You know, it's like, it's been a year all like we're going to live. So what, what does that look like? Mm-hmm. moving?
0: Forward? So speaking of, you know, kind of, you know, moving forward through all this, let's talk about your studio flock studio. Where did you get the idea to create your own studio?
1: I should say the idea was not first to create a studio. It was to ask a question, if that gives you any insight about how the studio was formed. Okay. So one of my best friends, Wesley Hall, he's a graphic illustrator, designer, like creative director, fabric maker. Like he's a maker of many varieties and we've been friends for 10 years. So it's like, December 2018, and we spent most of our nights listening to like ambient house music from Japan, talking about good design and like, what does good mean? What does design mean? And how does it connect to social justice? We met because he was making posters for the local black lesbian cabaret night in New York City. And so we started to say, you know, I wonder if anyone else wants to hang out and talk about design. For community building, like in what that means, both in terms of aesthetic and in terms of like built environment and social technologies, how people spend time together. And so we started Flux Labs in January of 2019 and spent that whole year hosting 20 person design sprint dinners in my studio apartment on Madison and 28th in Manhattan. And that's where Flux came from. And so we would have these sprints and sketch with like 20 strangers in a room trying to figure out some idea. Like, how do you create ways for seniors to take care of themselves during a heat wave? How do you create a equitable cannabis industry? Just like having idea festivals for two hours with a meal that a friend would make. And that's where we came from. So since then, you know, we incorporated as a studio in August of last year, after testing some products all early 2020. And it really comes from a desire to make it easier, better, more enjoyable, more effective to do important work to change, like to make justice real for more people. So while that means a lot of working with nonprofits, it doesn't mean exclusively that. It means working with people who are like, we can make, like we can create pathways for change and bring people in. But it doesn't feel good to work here because all the structures are designed for centralized power, which doesn't feel good for most people besides the person who has the power. And even them, I don't think it feels that good.
0: Yeah. How has business sort of been going throughout all this?
1: I mean, honestly, Maurice, if you would have come to me, if like future Maurice would have come to pass me and said, like, listen, it's the year is 2020 and you're going to build a facilitation and strategy business on Zoom. I would have been like, what are you talking about? That's (laughs) Sounds like you've been doing some real hardcore things with your brain. (laughs) So business is good. I've been thinking a lot about what scale means because I don't want to be like, you know, we're not trying to be like the scale of an IDEO. But in terms of our ideology, we do want community design to be an understanding that's everywhere. But we don't have to like have 800 people to do that. So I think a lot of it just comes from wanting to have a dedicated crew of people to make magical things Like unexpected things happen. Hmm.
0: Now, as I was going through the flock studio website, and we'll have a link to that in the show notes, one of the projects from your studio, I guess you can call it a project more like an exhibition almost. uh, is called a watermelon for Leo. Talk to me about that.
1: I grew up with a dad who's an artist. I flirted with art most of my life. I believe that art is the stuff that like really touches you in the soul. And so when the pandemic first started and I had some months just to be at my house, I started thinking about a watermelon for Leo that came to life through the studio like six or seven months later. And it was an exhibition of objects that we called Artifacts of Blackness, kind of just exploring the idea of like, how did I construct my own sense of race identity outside of just like the hard things about being black. I didn't want to just be like, Oh, being black is like being afraid of the cops and being afraid of judgment at work and not getting paid enough. For me, it was about all the lessons around self-discipline, all of the lessons about community building and food from my grandma and trying to reclaim joy because the story of how watermelon became black, like that object has imbued with so much meaning. It's such a heavy fruit, Mm -hmm. like literally and figuratively. And so the idea was like how to explore that heaviness of objects and race with this like dash of, of again like kind of delight. So it actually started with a video on Instagram of me eating watermelon in the sun on my balcony, and then then the research happened. And then I started thinking about the objects in the home, and that's how the installation. That's how most things kind of come together. Is like there's a flash of an idea, I get a sketch out. I talked to some people about it. We start making some pieces. And then next thing you know, it's like 30 people have come together to produce this like six month long ex- you know, or four month long exhibition.
0: And for people that you know, go to the website and they can sort of see some of the, the images from here, there's this quote. Uh, I think it's probably a quote that frames the, the exhibit beautifully. It says, I want to go someplace where I can have a piece of watermelon in the sun without any shame, without any worry. Just present, enjoying it, savoring it, relishing it, and letting it be just for me. That is such a powerful, powerful quote. Thank you, Maurice. I appreciate that. What has kind of the reception been from the exhibit?
1: I have cried touring it with people. It's been received with a lot of like speechlessness in a good way. You know, like, I've had some interesting conversations with white women who didn't see the live exhibition but saw the 13-minute point-of-view documentary that we shot of it, knowing people couldn't come in person. Mm -hmm. And lots of, like, that just really resonated with me because, you know, like, I grew up with my grandma's recipe box and I never thought about how that was, like, a tool for her to make community at a really hard time in the world. And for my mother, who is the daughter of Leo, my grandfather for her felt like it felt like we could finally see each other a bit. Cause it was like, we shared my grandparents, but had very different experiences with them. And then for folks who just, who heard about the story of watermelon, it was a lot of like, Oh, I didn't know that story of watermelon being used as like a smear campaign against black joy. So the opportunity to kind of reclaim a simple act of eating a piece of fruit without shame For the black people in my life, that really was like, it felt kind of like a ghastly story, but also such a simple and beautiful opportunity.
0: And you also have sort of opened it up where it looks like people can kind of uh, have sort of virtual tours, I suppose, or like a virtual exhibition tour.
1: Yeah, it's a virtual exhibition tour and artist talk where we screen the 13 minute documentary with a small group. And then we talk about objects and community, and if race comes up, race comes up, but there's a lot of ways people can hold the uh, concepts in the show.
0: Awesome, awesome. We've been talking sort of a lot about family and, and origins and such. Let's talk about where you grew up. Are you originally from New York state? I am a New York
1: stater in May- forever. I've lived other places, but I've always considered New York state home. And for the most part, it's always been where the IRS believes I have lived. (laughs) (laughs) And, but I grew up in the suburbs of upstate New York around Albany. Okay. And it was 98% white. It was very small. It was the nineties. We used to call Albany Smallbunny, but (laughs) the public education system there was extraordinary. And my mom, right after I was like, I was four or five when we moved there from near Ithaca, New York. And she chose it because she knew, like, there's a lot of reasons she chose it. She had a good job at the state education department. She mostly though knew I could get a good education at like K through college. That wasn't going to be expensive, but it was going to be really high quality. Mm. And I really appreciate her doing that.
0: Were you a very artistic child? Did your family kind of help cultivate that, that sense of artisticness within you?
1: completely my mother can barely draw a clown like she's not she's more creative in like policy design than I would say anything in the traditional senses of design but my um my stepdad who's my dad Scott he's an artist and was a welder worked in sculpture and both of them my whole life were like it's okay if you're different not even if it's it's okay but like my mom's thing was like be able to take care of yourself and be self-sufficient but be yourself and my dad's like even if it's difficult your creativity is something that you'll figure out over time so he always saw me as an artist and still does even though I spent a long time as like a nonprofit administrator so I always felt though like I went to puppet you know puppet making camp as a kid and <laughs> architecture camp and was in modern dance and gymnastics and took up watercolor and played clarinet. And, you know, I would make, <laughs> I bought a dictaphone when I was like 11 and I would write <laughs> songs and I would take notes to self and like write little plays. Like I've always, I feel like been fortunate that when I'm like in the decent space in my brain, I can like, I have a lot more generation energy, I think, than is typical.
0: Mm. And now you went to the the State University of New York at Albany. What was your time like there?
1: I was a child. I went to college when I was 16, and I went to graduate school when I was 19. Wow. I then dropped out of graduate school when I was 21 because I was real tired. Uh, (laughs) So I didn't finish it ever. (laughs) So. I've come this far at 36 with a bachelor's from a state school in sociology and Africana studies, which is a field I'm not even sure totally like exists or is politically correct to call it that anymore. I loved UAlbany because the very first week of college, I met my best friend Ashley, who I know 20 plus years later, and I met Barbara Smith in the library. I don't know if you know who that is, but she's like the founding like black lesbian feminist figure in like social justice circles. Okay. And she was a member of the Combahee River Collective, which is named after the Combahee River Raid and was all about like intersectional feminism. Mm-hmm. And I met her in the library. I was reading her book the first week of college, and she changed my entire life. Really saw me as a political being, not just as like a smart person, which was a real difference for me. So Albany, the school became a place of activism and energy you know i like did not just like we did the vagina monologues we did fred hampton jr the son of a black panther came to speak at my school wow. like you all was like a hotbed of politically activated people in the early 2000s i loved it i loved going to school there
0: but you said later on though you ended up dropping out does it did it just become too much at the time
1: yeah, I burned out. I burned out basically. I mean yeah. like not basically. I just I burned out. As much as it was really difficult to go from being like 16-year-old college phenom, like youngest person yada yada. I think that really understanding burnout mm-hmm. at that age was a gift cuz now I know that burnout isn't just about like the volume of work. It's about what is it that actually like sustains you? Yeah. And for me that's always been my relationships with other people. And if I can only work, but I can't be in community, if I can't struggle to figure out how to like take care of myself with other people and just be connected, like that kind of deep loneliness I think is what burnt me out. Mm. So now that I know that I don't live that way anymore.
0: I want to go back to something you mentioned there about kind of going to college at such a, a young age and kind of being yeah. this phenom I'm curious, you know, just just curious, like, were you in yeah. any sort of like gifted courses or anything in school like leading up to that?
1: Yeah, I did AP classes. I did learning and gifted programs. But the, the big thing for me was that I graduated from high school early. Yeah. We moved to Long Island very briefly to East Northport on Long Island. And uh, it was a really difficult experience for me. And I was really aggressively bullied, called the N-word, spit mm-hmm. on, people threw things at me. It was hard. I was out and gay at like 15, which is not easy. Didn't know I was trans, yada, yada. My guidance counselor, though, Ms. Goldberg, was amazing. And she was like, you're really smart, and let's keep you in classes. Let's uh, double up on gym, double up on history. I took a feminist studies course at SUNY Stony Brook when I was 15 as an advanced college course. I could graduate from college early. And basically, Ms. Goldberg like showed me the path to graduate from high school year early. So that was a big part of how I got to school early. And I felt a lot of pressure to be like living up to my potential. So when I got to college, I was like, I'm going to get my PhD by the time I'm 30. Yeah. (laughs) Again, like building your entire identity in like one bucket of like the smart, young brown person, you know, at some point you're going to get older. (laughs) So yeah, it's good to understand yourself outside of being the youngest.
0: No, I, I wanted to go back to that briefly because it, it actually yeah. kind of reminded me of, of how it was kind of when I grew up. Um, I mean, I'm mm-hmm. from Selma, Alabama. So from the like deep mm-hmm. South and was sort of considered growing up, you know, kind of the, the same way, like, oh, he's like super smart and knows all these things. And like, there is this, this burden of expectation that can be put yes. upon you when you're that age that is largely community driven, which I find to be interesting. Like, uh, I mean, I, for my family, for example, they knew that I was smart, but they didn't make a big deal out of it. You know, I still had to do things like a regular kid had to do. But like, for example, if me and my mom would go to, oh God, I hated this. I don't know why I'm telling this story. Me and my mom would go to Walmart, you know, maybe bump into people that she knew or something like that. This is when I was like, you know, at a younger age. And they were yeah. always sort of like quizzing me, like spell woodpecker. Or or sing that song that you know or something like that, and it was like, do a dance, smart kid, do it. Yeah, yeah. Like after a while, it's like you're this this you're treated like this performance object and not like a person. And I mean, in a way, like I think when I was around, I think when I got to high school, I was just rebelling and like not really rebelling, but just doing things in stupid ways because I could. Like I knew that I could pass my courses, so why not cause a little mischief in school? Because What are people going to do about it? I'm the smartest kid in school. What are you going to do? That kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. And I wish more, more parents knew this. And I really kind of wish that communities knew this. Like putting that much pressure on like a, a young, smart black child. It's such a fragile time to, you know, when all of that stuff happens and how it can really form and shape who you are in the future and what you do and how you look at You're really poor. like just like life and people and humanity. It's such a, oh, it's such a f- interesting time. I look back at that time and and think about how I was talked to, like, similar to kind of what you were saying, like you'd go to these different sorts of things and people are calling you names and bullying you and stuff like that. And yeah. it's It's just so I don't know, because by the time I got out into the world, none of that mattered. (laughs) Like by the time I I graduated college, (laughs) and got into the world. No one was like, oh, you you could read at a young age. So like, like none of that mattered. But
1: like, yeah, you don't go to job interviews saying like, oh, I'm I was in a gifted and talented program when I was 12.
0: (laughs) Yeah. But then but then when you're a child or like when you're in that age up to 18, like there's so much undue pressure that's put on you to just I don't know. Perform, overperform, I don't know, like it's such a oh God, I don't know. No, it's I don't hard. Know. And you I'm, said that it it, it triggered something in me. Like I remember end, that yeah. time so so vividly.
1: And you gotta have like I feel like it also it can mess with your what did they call it when I was a kid? Like delusions of grandeur. Like I definitely mm-hmm. was always like, you'll see. <laughs> you know, like, I mean, I still kind of ha- feel that like I definitely have a little bit of like a, cause it w- all the praise came from people who are a lot older than I was. Yeah, My peers were just like, they just yeah. sucked and they'd yeah. be like, Oh, you're going to have a nervous breakdown when you blah, blah mm-hmm. all this stuff. And so I definitely am that person who's like, really wants to go to my high school reunion. So I can be like, suck a like, gotcha. <laughs> like turned out just great. Cause my mom and my dad were always like, again, like they didn't actually push me to like, like, they want me to be financially independent, Mm -hmm. but my mom is really smart too. And so is my dad. And so we're just like kind of three smart weird people living in a house together with a pretty big age gap, you know, and a lot (laughs) of love and a lot of like curiosity about how things work together.
0: Yeah. It it makes a difference, you know, especially when you start to grow out of that and you go out into the world and you're able to still come back home in a way that you know, that you're a changed person from being out in the world and experiencing things. But yeah, it's such a, I don't know. That's such an interesting, interesting kind of time.
1: And it's hard. we don't talk about it a lot.
0: Yeah. So you mentioned like you, you know, you worked in nonprofits, you have this, this super extensive background in facilitation and community strategy. Where does that come from? Where did that passion come from?
1: The Women's Building in Albany, New York, and Holding Our Own Women's Foundation. Holding Our Own, so when I met Barbara Smith my first week of college, she helped me get involved with the Albany Social Justice Center, and then she got me involved with Holding Our Own in the Women's Building. And the Women's Building, when you walk down Central Avenue, it's like a major street in Albany, New York. This, like, living room storefront and it had a back with offices and a conference space and like multi multi-purpose spaces but it was it was like just a big living room with like every feminist social justice book that you could ever imagine like all like donated by women and social justice luminaries in the area and on campus I hadn't really found my groove yet and like in my peer group I never found my groove mm-hmm. but there again I had a political voice I felt I feel like I discovered my own political agency and my, and like the understanding of like what's possible when you have collective political power, that was uh, incredibly addictive. <laughs> so I'm really always aching for making things possible by working together, even though it's not always more pleasant, but the outcome is better, you know, yeah. but it can be pleasant, but it's like, I don't know. I feel like it was the women's building that got me kind of hooked. And then the, the, kind of identity-based groups on campus and activism and, you know, I am like black and trans and fat. Like if I'm not activist oriented, I've swallowed a pill of assimilation, which like I know happens, but the reality is I would like to make the world. I'd like to make like my little pocket of community as strong as it can be.
0: Mm. Was there a moment that kind of marked a shift more into kind of art and visualization around community strategy and facilitation? Like what happened to make that that sort of change happen?
1: I would love to say it was like, oh, I went to the MoMA and I saw this thing, or I went to this IDEO class, which I did, which also really changed my life. Like I really found all of the courses online from like the ideos, the SY partners, all these kind of like big social design firms, put a lot of stuff out online and that was all really cool. But I didn't really understand the power of design in my life as a nonprofit person until like, I started to really understand how much time was wasted with text based documents. So I worked specifically with board management and these really big nonprofits. So you have a board of like forty five people and they'd meet every four months and they had to get ready for those meetings, right? Mm-hmm. And you would send them a two hundred page like I would spend months pulling together from every department, getting everything written, making it all work with the agenda, blah blah blah, a two hundred page text-based PDF, like all text. And you'd send it two weeks in advance and then the expectation in the whole sector, this is still true. Like this is true right now for all 1.7 million nonprofits in this country that have like four board meetings a year, they're all sending out these like 15 to 200 page PDFs. And then they're expecting the boards to read them, digest them, make meaning of them, then come to the meeting and make some decisions. And I was like, this doesn't make any sense. (laughs) (laughs) And they're like, the boards aren't engaged. They don't really understand what's happening. And I was like, this feels like a real obvious
0: issue. Mm -hmm.
1: And so we started playing with like presentation decks and iconography. And I've always had an eye for, I just, I like making things look cool and interesting. So I realized basically in the nonprofit landscape, what you don't have is time (laughs) Like you don't have money, so you have to like, so time is super special and this hyper-precious resource. And in the private sector, people spend so much energy figuring out how to ha- save more time, and like building wayfinding systems and onboarding systems and all these designed systems and assets. And then in the social sector, none of that like innovation comes. It doesn't show up there. Yeah. So if we're seeing the nonprofits are doing the most important work in the world and they're only 10 percent of the economy but we're not equipping them with any design fluency in any sense of design from community design to illustration to, you know, systems design to communication design. It's a tragedy and it's not necessary.
0: Is this kind of where you came upon the concept of community design?
1: Yeah, because community design to me, well, it comes from the land of urban planning and it was about like building engagement over a system, like building community ownership and voice in a process to design a community neighborhood. <laughs> so it's like, this is your thing, people. So it should be your thing and you should be part of, like not just part of, but you should be leading the design of what you need. And I started thinking a lot about growing up reading management books, because before my dad was an artist, he worked for Kodak when Kodak was Google. And so I grew up like with a mom working in education justice, a dad who was a learning and development specialist, And a knack for creativity. So I started to say like, how can you actually take design and community design and apply it to organizations? Because nonprofits are communities of people trying to make the world better. So I want that to be easier and more likely, honestly, and faster.
0: How would you say community design is different from other types of human-centered design?
1: Well, I don't look at community design as human-centered design because- I find that human-centered design, like if traditional design is one-to-one, right? Like I Sloan design a pen for Maurice, one-to-one-to-one. Human-centered design is like, Maurice, I'm designing a pen. Do you write mostly in black ink or in blue ink? And you'll tell me and then I'll go back and finish the pen. And community design is like sitting down to say like, do we want to write a story together? And that is more Mm many-to-many, making a decision about, what are we doing here? What tools do we need to do what we're doing here? Who's going to do what, when, like, it's actually shared. It's like relocating power and decision-making to the many instead of the few. And I think nothing could be more urgent right now. Cause clearly we don't know how to handle like working in collective and in commons or we wouldn't have so many collective crises.
0: Yeah. I was just about to ask, like, why do you feel it's important to do this type of work right now? But As you mentioned, you know, being able to work together in that way is something that especially now that I think about um, the coordinated responses that have to happen around, you know, not even just like with vaccines, but like
1: (laughs) Like, like
0: fundraising for healthcare and like the storms that just happened in Texas, you know, and everything like that. And people trying to rally together for resources and stuff. It's super important right now.
1: And like there's a breakdown somewhere, you know, it's like there's been a limited coordinated response from our institutions, you know, and what's happened is that people show up for each other. It's like, if your neighbor needs food and you realize all your neighbors need food and how many of your neighbors have the food, how do you get the neighbors to, how do you move the food? I'm constantly in awe of what emerges in community. Like in New York, people are like, Oh, New York city is dead, but New York seems more alive to me than the whole 12 years I've been here. You know, it's more dynamic and people rooted and community rooted and everyone's trying to figure out how to make it work better for all of us overall. You know, like there's obviously nuance to that in terms of resource hoarding and all that kind of stuff. But the energy of the city feels much more like, how do I help a neighbor as opposed to just how do I help myself?
0: Mm-hmm. I would say that's one of the the good things that has come out of all of this is really realizing the power of community and that yeah really we have to help each other i mean that's that's uh that's what we got. Like, i that's mean that's all so that's all we, we, that's we, all we got you know and i mean yeah. in a way it did kind of come because of the kind of lack of support from federal leaders and such like that that we were kind of were fending for ourselves out here
1: yeah and like when you feel like a system like democracy doesn't care about you You want to find that care. And I think that we are finding that now, like, re-understanding what democracy means and civic participation and just, like, Mm community-ness. Like, not every community thing is going to happen because there is a nonprofit or a government entity or a business. A lot of things have to happen because they have to happen. Like, if I've learned anything from some of our clients, it's like... When I asked them, you know, how did you survive 2020 as an organization? You know, these are groups that are working on anything from economic justice climate justice, but justice. And they were like, it's not an option. It's not like this year was like, oh, do we need each other? I don't know. It's like a lecture to have each other. Now it's like, because we can't have each other in the same way and care for each other and work together in the same way, we like realize just how much we need that in a different way. Like, we've all been on like community timeout. And I think now people are like, okay. I'm ready for the contact sport that is being in community <laughs> with all these other humans that I live near, work with, share an interest group with, or whatever.
0: Yeah. Or a shared need. How are you making space for yourself these days?
1: Mm-hmm. It feels timely. I got more notepads, like more big sketchbooks. Cause I realized so much of my life is just like on my phone or the computer. So I've been trying to like de digitize a bit and spend more time with like a piece of paper and a pencil which has been that's felt kind of kind and gentle with myself that's felt good and I hold space for myself with a pretty firm boundary around like I don't work Saturdays ever I don't have meetings on Wednesdays ever and those things like literally hold space for me I also like made my apartment a little more comfortable Cause I was definitely like living that bachelor entrepreneur life. And I was like, you should really get a bed frame. You're 36.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I feel like a lot of people have, now that they've, they've been at home so much and that their home has been so many different spaces or, or it's had to accommodate yeah. so many different functions. Everyone's like trying to find ways to make things more comfortable, more cozy. You know, I totally feel that
1: June of like 15. It's funny you say that Maurice. I read a paper this morning. I read a lot of papers, but like, it's I read a lot of like, articles but also like reports and papers and when this morning came out and said that while employers are trying to figure out if like everyone should go back to the office, they're also like, Oh, we saved all this money and like they saved it, but the employees did not employees spent like $15 billion on home improvements this
0: year. Whoa.
1: Like some bananas number is like this increase in how much money people have been putting into like home sound systems, furniture, Lighting systems, ring lights, like all of this stuff to be working from home, which continues to push the like cost of being employed mm-hmm. off of employers and onto employees. That's a conversation for a whole different day. <laughs> <laughs>
0: what does home mean to you then? Now
1: it feels like my answer is like it's like a command center. Yeah. Like I think about it as if like I'm sitting in front of like one of those like star Trek like dashboards where everything kind of like lights up and I can move things around. Like it does feel like a kind of like central post of everything in a way that it hasn't before. I traveled almost a million miles in the last 10 years and like 80% of that was domestic. So this has been the first year of my life in eight years where I wasn't traveling twice a week. So. It feels really like a grounded place, like a a power source for me.
0: If you could sort of, like, if you look back at your life and look back at your career, if you could go back in time and and talk to teenage Sloan, like talk to 16-year-old Sloan that's about to enter college, what would you tell them? What advice would you give them?
1: You don't want to be a doctor. Just don't waste the first six years or the first six months of college figuring out if you want to be a doctor or you don't want to be a doctor. And I would say that be careful of the desire for fame because it should never be the goal.
0: Where do you see yourself in the next five years? Have you kind of taken time to think about like future sort of work that you'd like to be doing?
1: When I moved to New York 12 years ago, I really wanted to be a music video director. I thought it'd be the best job for me ever. I was like, it's multidimensional, it's creative and it's big. And like, it's a whole room that people experience. Like you create this whole shared experience. So I don't exactly know what I'll be doing in five years, but I know I want myself in the studio. I want us to be creating incredible immersive like experiences and installations that make people see, How, again, like just how intentional and wonderful and complicated, but effective and meaningful community can be like, that's, that's all I want, like South by Southwest, but for community building, you know,
0: Mm -hmm.
1: and like cooler than that.
0: Well, just to, you know, kind of wrap things up here, where can our audience find out more information about you and about your work and everything online?
1: the best thing to do is to follow me on Instagram is where I do a lot of fun things. I'm at the real Sloan Leo and my website is Sloan If you have questions about like the studio and consulting projects and stuff, it's just flock But the best source to get to all of the things is Sloan Leo S-L-O-A-N-L-E-O.com.
0: All right. That sounds good. Well, Sloan Leo, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show I have to admit, I was doing my research and I was like, I am so excited to talk to Sloan. And I have to say, this has been such a great conversation. I feel like you have this, this like nuclear engine inside you when it comes to like the passion that you have for your work. And I mean, even for just the brief things that I saw on your website around the exhibitions you've done and the the work that you're doing, I'm excited to see what comes next out of flock studio and what you do in the future. And I'm just so glad to have had this time to to talk with you today. So thank you for coming on the show. I appreciate it.
1: I appreciate that too, Maurice. And I forgot to say that the best place to follow, like a lot of stuff in terms of our projects and like when you can hang out and like what events are happening is really on my LinkedIn. But regardless, it has been, <laughs> this is the first interview I've ever had where it was like, if you could reflect on your career. And I was like, That feels good. Like feels like good aging. So thanks for giving me a chance to have some just perspective on the last like 15 years that went really fast.
0: Big big thanks to Sloan Leo, and of course, thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Sloan and their work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. And of course, thanks to our wonderful sponsor for this episode, Brevity and Wit. Brevity & Wit is a strategy and design firm committed to designing a more inclusive and equitable world. They accomplish this through graphic design, presentations, and workshops around IDEA, Inclusion, Diversity, Equity, and Accessibility. If you're curious to learn how to combine a passion for IDEA with design, check them out at brevityandwit.com. Brevity & Wit, Creative Excellence Without the Grind. Revision Path is brought to you by Lunch, a multidisciplinary creative studio in Atlanta, Georgia. This podcast is created, hosted, and produced by me, Maurice Cherry, with engineering and editing by R.J. Basilio. Our intro voiceover is by Music Man Dre, with intro and outro music by Yellow Speaker. What did you think of the interview? What do you think about the podcast overall? Don't be a stranger. Talk to us on social media. Hit me up on Twitter or Instagram. Just search for at or leave a rating and a review on Apple podcasts. Let the world know about the show because it really helps us grow and reach more people all around the world. As always, thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next time.